Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We're talking today to Peter Reeve, who's the CEO of Aura Energy, an Australian junior miner in the uranium and vanadium space. We talked to him about his strategy, plus their big company experience versus running a junior, why he picked uranium mining in Africa, director's remuneration, quite a hot topic at the moment, the lack of marketing and promotion this year, which is affecting their liquidity and share price, and wishful thinking for vanadium. Good morning, Peter, how are you, sir? Thank you. Okay, well, why don't we kick off with a one-minute summary of, of the business, then we'll get stuck into some questions. Okay, Aura's got three major parts of its business. Uh, the first one is the Terrace Uranium Project in Mauritania, where we've just released the definitive feasibility study. We've got a um, vanadium project called Hagen up in Sweden, and we have some fantastic gold and base metal and battery metal tenements for exploration down in Mauritania as well. Quite a lot of work's been done on those, and that's an interesting um, situation. You know, third off the rank, if you like, be, uh, before two development projects. We are focusing on getting cash flow out of Tiris first up, and uh, with that cash flow, you know, help to build the other projects. But we're also considering each one of these businesses to be essentially separate entities, so we're trying to fund them separately. So we do talk about an IPO separately for Hagen, and we talk about some form of separate funding for the gold base and battery metal exploration. And really, corporate from Aura is funding Tiris. Let's get into that, because um, I think it'd be interesting for us to actually understand the thinking and the mentality of the management team, the, the board of directors yeah. here, because you just alluded to that. So, so what was the big idea when you put this together? So if I look at your track record, some big names in there, um, you know, big company um, experience, yeah. but you, this is a startup. So what are you looking to yeah. do? Okay, if I talk to the management team for a start, the majority of the management team and a couple of the directors came from Shell Billiton. In fact, one of my directors was my boss back in Shell Billiton when we were 30. So we're essentially from big companies. And what big companies do really, really well is they do a lot of good, boring technical stuff but they fail to sort of capitalise on it all the time and commercialise it because big companies don't have the financial imperative that little companies have. I left Shell Billiton, went out, I did a lot of things. I became a fund manager. I, was, I went to a lot of other mining companies, did some big IPOs, uh, and then one of the directors asked me to come back in. The reason why I came back in um, after having run some large companies was because I believed and I still believe that these assets can deliver a very, very large company over time when we get these projects in cash flow. So that's probably the core thinking. Very, very good technical people, very experienced technical people, and um, but hadn't had probably as much commercial uh, impetus as we needed to get these things driving. So. What we want to do with the projects is we don't want to trade shares on the stock market. We don't want to flip projects. We want to cut the ribbon on production for our projects. But obviously, it's a, directs, it's, a, it's a director's decision. If somebody offers a lot of money for projects, of course, we'll sell them. But what we really want to do, we believe the best way to get you know, best value for shareholders is via cash flow receipts. Um, you can do it via takeover. 
you can do it via um, other other methods, but we believe cash flow receipts will ultimately give you the highest valuation. So we want to get these things into production, and um, and make them make them very valuable for the shareholders. Well, that's what you want to do. But I'm, I'm more interested in the strategy. You know, so you you've selected uranium, you've selected vanadium, and battery metals. You know. And they're having varying, varying, well, quite volatile in the case of vanadium. Uranium's in a you know tricky position at the moment, but obviously people are expecting that story to you know bear fruit. Uh, and battery metals, you know, fla- flavor of the month. So, why did you pick on those very different commodities in you know Mauritania versus Sweden, two very different types of environments, right? Uh, and again, you know. Help us understand that bit. You know, why did you pick on these? Was it a case of they they were there, or was it a case of actually we specifically identified these commodities or these jurisdictions? What was the logic? Going back to the first comment I made about the fact that the company started and was based on highly technical people, well before I joined, um, we had very very intrepid geos. Geos don't see borders; they just see rocks and mineralisation. So. It was 2007, 2008, and they thought uranium was a very good idea. So they went and discovered uranium in Mauritania. A government um, survey had been sitting there without any work, a radiometric survey, without any sort of uh, overview of anybody external for five, six years. Our guys actually mounted the expedition, went out into the desert and uh, found the first uranium out there. Similarly, um, one of our directors, who was the CEO, had done some work in um, the Scandinavian countries as a younger GO and knew that the Alum Shale ran into Sweden and eventually, in you know, long story short, that became a, uh, a piece of ground they pegged uh, and cut the first resource for uranium and vanadium and a lot of other metals in that Alum Shale uh, for that Hagen project. So, you know, the very nice thing, again, about our company, both those projects were virgin discoveries to us. They haven't cost us a lot of money. We found them out of sort of real geology. So we selected it. The Swedish government about 18 months uh, ago banned the uranium mining, as you're probably aware. And um, we had done a lot of study on vanadium uh, in the past, but the vanadium price had been too low. uh, And so we put that in the background but it's a polymetallic. There are a lot of other metals in it. Um, when the uranium looked like it was going to be problematic in Sweden, um, we started to we recut the resource immediately on the vanadium side. Of course, the vanadium price for a period of time you know, looked sensational. And frankly, for good projects, it's still okay now. Um, and so we recast that project, which we discovered back in 2009-10. We recast that as a vanadium uh, project with some byproduct credits. And then just to flick onto the gold side of it, um, um, slightly more complicated, we had a parallel sister company called Drake Resources. Drake Resources, under our principal geologist, had put together this gold package in Mauritania. They raised some years ago, they raised $10 million on it. They spent $3 million of that 10 on the project. And Neil Clifford, who's my principal geo, conceived that project when he was principal geo for Drake. And when Drake decided to do other things corporately, we quickly picked that project up. So again, it goes back, every one of our projects 
is the technical sort of genesis of our people over a long period of time. Right. And we rank our technical people very highly. I mean, Neil Clifford, for example, is probably one of the best geos in Australia and nobody knows his name. He's fantastic. He's found 20 million ounces of gold in Australia. Right. Essentially found the sunrise deposit. So, okay. um, so yeah, our, our people, our technical people have driven what we've done. Okay, so you've got, you've got a really really technical team and I do want to get on to that. So, and again, just kind of finish off on this, this strategy. So these projects have been identified and I say pegged by your, your technical team. Um, so they, was that all done before you arrived? Uh, the discoveries were done before I arrived, right. yeah. Okay. The, the shift to vanadium was done under under my uh, direction. I sort of drove a fair bit of that. Um, the pickup of the gold and base metals and battery metals was done under my, uh, my time as well. Right, okay. So would you have chosen, okay, let me ask you, on the uranium project, would you have chosen to do that if you were starting today? Would you say this is something we should do? Oh, I'm still a believer in the uranium price. Absolutely, definitely. I, I do believe it's something to do. But what I recognised really quickly was that the uranium price, you couldn't guarantee uh, anybody that the uranium price is going to go up in the next 12 months, two years or three years. And that's yeah. been right. So we quickly started to diversify. So what you're seeing if you're trying to get to where we are on strategy is what we did decide to do is don't put all our eggs in one basket. Let's broaden this out. Right, so the okay. move to have... So we started with pure uranium. We've now got uranium, vanadium, and we've got gold base and battery metal exploration. Right. We've broadened it right out. Junior's got lots of challenges, but you, you're making sure that um, you're mitigating that geographic uh, risk um, in terms of country risk. Yeah. Um, well, let's get on. Let's get on to that. You, know, you talked about the team being technical a second ago. So. Um, I, I hear that loud and clear, very, very technical team, very good team. But what about all the other experience or skill sets required? Now, you guys have come from big companies. Is there anyone in there who's been used to running junior companies? Because it's got a whole bunch of different uh, needs. Yeah, look, well, quite a few of us have been involved in junior companies. So we, let's just say we all, we all were seeded, came out of larger companies. But yeah, oh, look, five or six junior companies are mixed amongst all our experience. So no, you know, since 2006, 2007, Bob Beeson, one of our directors, junior mining companies, Neil Clifford, our geologist, has has uh, done a lot of consulting and worked in junior mining companies. Will, Will Goodall, our principal metallurgist, similar. I mean, I've probably worked now in something of the order, say, I look, five or six junior mining companies. I've been a director of most of those you know, maybe investments from Ivanhoe into junior mining companies. So, no, we've got a lot of junior mining experience as well. You know, nothing prepares you for a bad time in a junior mining company. You, you, you need all the experience in the world you can to run these things because the uh, the biggest bucking bull that you'll see in a rodeo is a, is a cakewalk compared to a junior mining company in a tough sector. Well, that's what that's what I'm asking, you know, because if, if a, you know, the, you, it's a whole different set of financial constraints that you have, and you don't have the resource uh, of, in terms of, of people or the ability to, you know, tap into resource. Um, so, so let's talk about some of those things. So let's talk about finance first of all. Obviously, you know, with your, Ivanhoe, you were associated with Robert Friedland. I guess he he could open a lot of doors on terms of the finance. But how are you finding it now, going from b- b- 
big boy stuff down to juniors and are some of those doors shut or you polite conversations? How do you go about raising money? Oh, look, as I said on another interview a little while ago, Robert's one of the, uh, he will go to his grave one of these days. I'm not trying to hasten that on at all, but he'll go to his grave as one of the world's best mining CEOs that's probably set foot on the earth. And I say that simply by the scorecard for the number of great operating projects that he will have to his name out there still putting dirt through the mill. You know, nobody at the top of Rio or BHP has done what he has done. So, and going with that is Robert's ability. He's got a magical puffer bottle in his coat jacket and he pulls it out and he puffs this little bottle and the investors just hand over money. It's fantastic. Now, he, he's got some magic about him where he, uh, he raises money and he does it very, very well. And I haven't got a clue how he does it. As much as I sat next to him for five, six years, so what, I haven't got a clue. So, so, what, are, so what are you going to do now? So how are you going to raise money? How, how do you go about it? Oh, look, we, um, we've got to do it more incrementally, clearly. Um, we had a strategy to get the gold and base metals moving through the uh, DFS period for Tiris, uh, but we couldn't get those tenements granted quick enough for that strategy to come off. We thought that would be a good strategy to sort of uh, go parallel with that boring sort of development phase because we know that investors and share prices go to sleep when you're trying to develop a project. Um, but now we're in the situation where with Tiris in particular, the strategy we are pursuing is export credit agency finance. Um, not completely um, well known, but I think perfect for, um, for what a junior mining development company does. And that's obviously where a sovereign nation lends the junior the money and the quid pro for that is that they buy the equipment for um, its project from that country. Right, okay, okay. So you, you've had to, like many juniors, have to look at alternative financing, alternative structures to be able to get this thing going. And, and we will get on to Terrace in, in, in a moment with regards to what you're doing there because I think there's, there's um, a lot to talk about. Um, so finance... I, I'm not sure I kind of understood the, you know, how you're approaching it, it in, in a totality. So Teresa, you've explained, how are you, I mean, how are you funded now? How much cash have you got today? Let's start with that. Well, we put the quarterly out yesterday, I've got $830,000 in the bank. Right. Um, we, we are essentially equity funding um, all of our projects via, via Aura Corporate. That's how we're doing it. Um, we are looking at various deals. Um, we're looking at any, you know, the IPO for Hagen is another way to relieve or a corporate from having to fund all of our programs. Right. You know, if I could find, and we are looking for a royalty interest in the gold and base metal uh, part of the business in order to keep the funding off there. So, as I said initially, we're trying to look at. Aura at the moment as three distinct businesses and each need their distinct form of funding. Right. So I'm hearing this is more an Aura itself is potentially an incubator or hold co for these assets, which may be spun out into their own vehicles. Is that what you're saying? It's Look, it's not quite um, as direct as that as a strategy, because if I was doing that, I would say I would have started the conversation and say, hey, we're a company incubator and we're going to spin these things out. Yeah. But you're right. It's, it's a correct pickup. That's essentially what we're trying to do. We don't want to keep on um, making shareholders who are here for our uranium asset 
farmed vanadium when it might not be their flavour of the month. We Got don't it. necessarily think everybody's interested in, you know, more primary exploration in gold-based metals and battery metals. So if we can fund it separately, we cop less criticism from shareholders. Got it. Okay, so, you know, corporate, i.e. your shareholders who've invested into Aura Energy are paying for this. So, I mean, how do you directors uh, remunerate yourselves? I mean, are you on, like, big, big salaries and... You know, big warrants, big options, or is this a case of uh, what, what? What? How do you manage that? The directors, the directors are just on moderate, moderate and normal directors' salaries. Um, yeah, I'm on a salary that I've taken for quite a lot of time between cash and shares. Mm. I've got performance rights. Um, it, it's just a mix of of the normal. Right. Okay. So of your eight hundred odd thousand dollars. Yes. That's going to last you till when, and what is that being spent on? Is that mostly GNA, or you, what? How does that work? Oh no, no, it's not GNA. No, we um, so we did a two million dollar financing uh, only about um, two and a half, three months ago, right. and we were very focused on putting all that money into getting the tierist DFS finished. And that's been the bulk of. The money that you spent since then till now is it yes that's right and right. also um the um the work we're doing on hagen so we drilled uh for about three or four months in hagen uh we've now been cutting the core doing the assays because we're trying to get a measured and indicator resource up for hagen a resource estimate done a mining plan done so we can release a scoping study very shortly so really or a corporate and that money we raise mm. is really focused on getting the dfs done and and that's now ticked off so when do you need then, to go and raise more capital if, if, if i may ask when do you well, need to go I, and raise more capital to be honest I, i'm not going to answer that question in an interview because that's a selective briefing so i've got to be very careful with stuff like that okay um so we wouldn't answer when we're going to run out of money we wouldn't answer when we're going to raise money again uh, we put it out in the quarter yesterday. We put out forecast amounts of cash we're going to spend over a period of time. So you know, people are well, you know, can can make their own decisions on that. Okay. Um, we, but what we're trying to do is make sure that um, that every single bit of money we spend is is ticking off some form of technical box in one of the projects. And so really, the money we raised recently was about the DFS and Hagen to that scoping study stage. And then everything, and after that, and pretty well no money on the gold. And after that, everything's really got to flow. Everything's got to fund itself. You know, I've really, I'm not going to take any more money out of Aura Corporate to fund Hagen. I'm not going to take any money out of gold, out of Aura to fund um, the gold and base battery metals. We've got to find alternative sources of funds for that. Right. You'll find alternative funds for those two. But Terrace, you think, with this export agency finance, should also fund itself. So everything's fully funded. Yeah. The export credit agency finance is also is a combined package for both uh, Hagen and Tiris, right. but Hagen's it, it, there's a time lag, so yeah, it's it's more focused on Tiris at the front end. Got it, got it. Okay, and and just just finish off on the team's experience of, you know, yeah. uh, like I say, uranium is very different from gold, battery metals, vanadium. I mean, what's the relevant experience in the team in those commodities? Oh, like I say, um, well, look, Neil Neil was a part of the discovery team for Tyrus Uranium. He's a geologist. 
he found a fantastic gold deposit as well. So good okay. geos can do both, you know. Okay. Um, okay. Tiris, Tiris wasn't particularly, um, uh, you know, it was sitting there essentially. It was a very good radiometric survey. Right. Um, I mean, I worked in uranium in Australia 20 years ago up at Ranger. Um, you know, Will is a very, very good metallurgist across many, many disciplines. He works with First Quantum. He works with BHP. So, yeah, we, we've got enough experience in the different areas. But we're also, what we do, and we do it really well, we've got a, a great technical network. We source, um, we basically employ 60-year-old people wherever we can because they've got the best experience and they come in on per diems and they work for us for a period of time. So if we need a gold expert of an ADIM expert, we go and find it. Got it. Okay, okay, I got it. So, um, but what about your commitment? Are you sitting on any other boards? How do you spend your time? How much time spent on oil? Um, no, I'm on I'm full time, but I'm on one other board. One other board, all right. Which I was on before I left. Right, okay. The other thing that I, no I noticed from one of your previous interviews, you said, I think it was in November last year, you said, um, yeah. we haven't spent enough on marketing steps, but we're going to make positive changes. Yeah, we're going to do that. Um, think you've done that. Have we done enough on marketing? Yeah. You said from in November that you were going to make positive step changes. You know, really? You said that. On film. Look, you know, I'm really, I've been around long enough to know that when the uranium price is sitting still at $24, $25 a pound, it's pretty hard to go out and market uranium. Yeah. Um, I would have said that, and I do say that on the basis of commodities doing some good work. You know, And really, at the moment, the commodities aren't doing good work. Gold's doing some good work. Uranium's not. Vanadium's not. Um, but we still believe in our projects. So you know, I'm a little bit of the, of the mind where We've sort of tucked our baton under our arm for the last 200. We've, and in tucking our arm under, what I'm really saying is we've got all the technical steps done. We've come across the finish line. And now is the time to really get out and talk very broadly about getting um, the Tiris uh, project understood out in the market. Right. But that said, uh, again, I've done thousands of investor meetings in my time. You can imagine working with Robert and people like that. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not going to get a super warm, oh, yeah, come on, let's have a talk about uranium. It's a fantastic commodity because at the moment it's not. But we also know the way uranium moves, that if a few utilities decide to walk through the door at the wrong time, i.e. together at the same time and sign big long-term contracts, uh, the uranium price will pop and things will change within a week. So my favourite saying in business is success is where preparation meets opportunity. And that's what we've been trying to do. We wanted to get prepared. And, and, you know, I mean, we are so happy and relieved at getting this DFS for Tiris completed. And we're so happy that it's in such a great condition and it's got such good stats. And it sits there as, a, as something we can now, if you like, you know, park technically and now really push our mind towards the financing and getting out and marketing that completed document. Been modestly hard to go out and market Tiris without um, a completed DFS. Now we really can. Nothing holds us back. Right. Okay. So, so that that's a long way of saying you've consciously decided not to do any marketing because you don't think the market's right. 
it money's tight, I guess. Um, but now you will, I guess, up your game in, in, in that department. Is that, is that what you're saying? Step up. Yeah, look, in November, when I made that statement, um, we were looking at, if you go back then, you'll probably see in our presentation, we were going to release the DFS probably in about February or March. It was actually mm. February date, okay? What happened was we came across, as you are meant to do in technical studies, we came across a clay issue within the ore and that affected the processing and that delayed the scoping study much to the you know chagrin of our shareholders, but that delayed the study by another three or four months. Right. Uh, but it's the same story. I wanted to get the study done in February, then get out and market. Now we have to, we've delayed that by three or four months. I th I th yeah, I think, I think that, well, the interview I watched, it was, I think you were talking about a July release. I think that it was probably slightly prior to that, but look, let, oh, okay. let, let, but like, that's a long time ago, right? I don't know what I did in November. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, it's but, but exactly, exactly. And mining's tough, right? It's not, not easy. Um, but let's let's just finish off on that thought, which is around the importance of marketing, the importance of talking to the market, because especially for juniors who need that liquidity, that increased volume of trading, and that comes from retail. I know with the Aussie market, it's a bit in a big retail market, and I know you're obviously listed on AIM as well. So you know those are two very large retail markets. Um, so is your idea to get into prom more promotion now? Do you believe in it or are you just a technical team? No, no. I mean, I, look, I was a metallurgist originally, but I'm a very rusty metallurgist now, I like to say. And uh, I did a dozen years out of my 35 in the field and, and I've been really pushing corporate and finance since then. Um, now, I've done a huge amount of marketing. Um, I think I know how to do it. Um, the... The, the issue, I suppose, around um, marketing for us has just been getting a really good saleable story, and I think we're getting there with both of them. We've made a change to our London um, broker as well. We've taken on SP Angel, who's yeah. very resource-focused, uh, and they are, at the moment, our joint broker, and there'll be another change coming up to, to put them um, more in the, uh, the box seat for helping us. So that's one big change. But but I, I have they do they have they produced any reports for you any broker reports for you? Uh, they are in the process of getting a broker report together because we only signed them up uh, about eight or nine weeks ago, seven or eight weeks ago, whatever it was, quite recently. Right. And okay. um, it's one of our announcements. And but they've put uh, some quite good daily reports out on us. Um, but a full research piece is in the in the pipeline. Again, just in, again in summary, so you value promotion. The question of was timing value promotion very much i learned it all the way back when i was a fund manager <clears throat> i used to describe uh, i said that western mining i described that with under hugh morgan was a, a company that essentially was a little shop front window with the blinds pulled down and we could never get the information out of them and so that taught me that you really had to have your windows cleaned your blinds up and your door open so mm -hmm. no, I'm a big believer in promotion. I'm a big believer. I would never have been a part of Robert's group had I not believed in promotion. So no, we really believe it. Um, our only customers for resource companies, I don't care what size you are and what commodity you are, your only customers in the world are your shareholders. We're all in commodities. Commodities walk out the door. The only customers we have are our shareholders. Glad you said it. Not many people recognize that. Good. Oh, no, it's, it's number one. 
Okay. I mean, I'm not saying I always do it as best as uh, as best as I could. I'm sure I can do things better at different times, but I'm a serious believer in it. Okay. So the the last presentation on your on your website is from March. We're getting an update on that soon. Getting a broker report soon, um, and you're going to get into the market more. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Shall we talk about your projects? That's kind of, I guess, why we're here, yeah. right? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Let's let's start with Tiris. Um, again, like to understand their thinking. You've gone for a, you know, everyone's got different business models. Yours is get into production first, and then we'll worry about building out the resources. Is that is that it? That's a that's a big part of it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we, okay, tell we me said more. to our shareholders. Well, we said to our shareholders on Tiris uh, quite some time ago. We've got a 52 million pound inferred resource there. We've just put um, basically 13 million pounds into um, mineable reserve plus a little bit of inventory. Um, but we've got a, a much bigger conversion to come from that. But I've said to them, I haven't got any interest in spending a lot of your precious money on pushing that resource out to be 30 or 40 million pounds of uh, reserve when I can only you know, spend you know, a million pounds of it a year. So yeah, 50, you think of Tiris as 52 million pounds inferred, 13 million pounds in the reserve mining inventory for the DFS. Um, we have got a 1 million pound per annum uh, project, call it at the moment, 800 and something on average, but call it a 1 million pound per annum project in a production sense. And we've already got some, you know, pretty interesting plans to look at expanding that to 3 million pounds per annum over time when we get more of that reserve, reserve conversion done. So let's let's understand where that sits in your strategy, okay? So that's not a big project. It's not particularly high grade. It's Mauritania, it's with all that kind of risk, but it potentially gives you cash flow to focus on the project that you want to focus on, which is slightly further north up in Sweden. Is that right? So it's not yeah, a bad strategy. Sure. It's an interesting yeah. strategy. I just want to, you know, you know, if that's what it is, tell, you know. When it comes down to it, um, you know, just on terrace. I mean, we came out the other day and said that in Australian dollar terms, we could make $27 million uh, per annum of after-tax cash flow. Put that on a 10 to 20 times multiple, um, whichever part of the cycle you're in, and you can start seeing, you know, what that project with a good uranium price and working could do. So it will go some way to funding what you do on Hagen, absolutely. Um, and then, but you know, Hagen will then stand on its own with, uh, with eventually a sort of portion of debt funding as well. Eventually it'll stand on its own, but right now it's yeah. not at that point. So I just, again, I, you know, I love understanding junior mining management mentality and you know and that, that's not a bad yes. strategy not the first time we've seen it it's worked elsewhere yeah. no nothing wrong with it yeah. I'm not, not criticizing it i yeah. just wanted well, to understand that's if that's your thinking it, that that has been our thinking all the way along uh however at the moment we've we're varying that a little bit by bringing in this concept of doing the ipo to uh to fund hagen in its own right one of the other issues with hagen is that when um when the Swedish sun rises, we go to sleep. Uh, and, you know, that's a sort of a pretty good analogy for, for what happens to projects like that, I think. Unless you have a really uh, well-paid, engaged and active management team in Sweden, um, it's, it's difficult to make projects come alive. So we are part of the Hagen IPO strategy 
is to get enough cash to set up a permanent management team who speaks Swedish, who like pickled herrings, who do all the right stuff, you know, in Sweden to make projects get ahead. And um, and, and that's that's really a part of where we are now. We, we want the Swedish project to live in uh, Swedish daylight hours, not try and make it live in Australia oh, daylight hours. Very, very, very sensible. Um, you know, we talk to management teams who, like, you know, think they can manage projects from the other side of the world. And it's tougher. It's not possible. It's just a lot tougher and, you know, creates problems. Really hard. Um, so, so let's, let's con just continue on tourists. So tourists, uranium space, uranium spot price is doing what it's doing. The utilities aren't fully engaged yet. I think you've got to buy into the macro story to get behind, you know, uranium. Um, your DFS, what does it, what's it telling you in terms of, you know, the, the, you talked about roughly a million pounds a, a year uh, over, I guess, 15 year life of mine type project but um that depends on the price right there's 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 a resource and then there's mineable ore right and depending yes. on the price uh that will determine the scale of this opportunity so what is your dfs telling you in terms of the the range of potential uh in terms of the range of size of the project yeah the, the conversion um, of resource to reserve is very high. And the reason is our deposit is, uh, call it an evaporative surface deposit. It's only, you know, average mining depth is about five metres. So we aren't looking at a pit wall, uh, which looks like a, a cone with the gem of a gold deposit yeah. down the bottom and then, you know, all that sort of thing. Yeah. So we uh, are in a really good situation where every piece of our ore is accessible. And I believe it's the sort of operation that, you know, it's one thing for us to devise what we do in the DFS. And that's a step you must go through for all sorts of reasons, the market, the banks and your directors and everybody. But when I unleash or when we unleash our operating team on that project, they're going to mm. do it exactly the way they see the ore in the ground. And our, my strong belief and the GEO's strong belief is that we will expand each of the resources in the area now. I mean, that, to get a reserve, of course, they've cut them off as nice square blocks because mine engineers like working in nice square blocks. They don't like shapes. And so um, once we can start showing that there is shape to it, it does go a little deeper, it does go a little further. Um, I think we'll expand the resource more than um, contract it. And uh, a lot of it will convert to reserve or mineable, uh, mineable whatever we want to call it, mineable resource. Um, and we still haven't really started to um, do exploration outside of the, the core discovery areas. And I think when we do that, um, and we, you know how it is, you've got, a, you've got a plant built, you've got a, a team there, you've got everything set up, the marginal cost of then going out to get that yeah. extra bit of ore which might just be a pot of five million pounds, you know, three or four kilometres out, is a lot lower. So, yeah. yeah, that's we understand what happens to projects once you get them there, and we're pretty excited about what that'll look like. But, yeah, I would be hoping one day we're going to mine 75 million pounds out of this thing at, at least. It's low-tech, low-capex, low-opex. Um, it's not just low-capex, by the way. Right. It's sensationally low-capex if you want to start me... <laughs> You want to get me onto marketing? Yeah. You go and look at any other junior mining company um, or any other uranium hopeful at the moment. 
yeah. and their capitals are mostly measured in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. So to get something sub 100 with a C1 cash cost of 25 and an, an all-in sustaining cost under 30, yeah. um, there's not many of us around. That's yeah. why I make this nice marketing line. I say that this is one of the most, this is currently one of the most compelling, but it is the most compelling uranium development projects in the world as we speak. As small as it is, yeah, one of the most compelling projects because of that capital and that opex. You've got a lot of competition. I think there's a there's a there's a there's a few uh, vanad- uh, uranium and vanadium uh, CEOs spinning that line at the moment. So, but it it, it sounds interesting. Um, I like where it sits in the strategy. But let's talk about Hagen because you've again previously said this is the most valuable asset in your portfolio currently. So you know, t- tell tell us why you say that. So you've done some drilling recently. How are you moving that thing forward? There's a lot of um, there's a lot of metal in that system. Just for one, um, you know, as I said, the the vanadium concentrations um, has been you know, equivalent almost to the uranium for a long period of time, probably even higher than the uranium. We had to make this change from uranium because the Swedish government decided that you know nuclear in 2040 is going to fall out of their energy balance. So they don't need uranium. That was there. And there was a bit of political stuff going on with the Greens, as you can imagine, as well. Um, but we were fortunate that we had done enough work. We understood enough. We'd done a lot of good drilling. So within two or three weeks of um, that all happening, we recut the resource into vanadium and we had it ready to go. So now we've got cutoff grades for our vanadium deposit and we found um, what we call a high grade zone but it would be better to call it a higher grade zone. Right. Um, and that's a higher grade zone of about 90 million tonnes at 0.42% of V205. Um, but again, we're, we're fortunate um, to Alan Shale. Alan Shale l- largely comes to surface. And so that, um, that resource would be encapsulated in a pit that uh, starts at about 20 metres from surface and finishes by about 90 metres. So again, a very manageable you know operation um before we were talking about a a, a heat leach a a uranium heat leach it was going to be you know 25 to 30 million tons per annum we're now talking about um a project which is um autoclaves and about two to three million 2.7 million tons per annum so quite a modest scale project um i can't talk I, we did the capital and operating estimates last year. So again, we spent our our $80,000 to get one of the independent uh, engineering firms to do the capital and operating estimates for Hagen. They're sitting there. ASX will not let us release that until we have the measured and indicated resource. We can't release that, unfortunately, with an inferred resource. Right. So again, it's out where preparation meets opportunity. So the numbers, we've got a lot of internal numbers and look, the project looks very, very good. Um, we we are quite aligned to the idea of the whole battery push, but um, you know, we'll sell our vanadium to anybody who wants it. But I think the, the, the battery push in vanadium is pretty interesting. Um, and when we start to look at the scale of this project without giving too much away because I'm not allowed to, um, we find that if we, um, we've contemplated at the moment a 7,500 tonne per annum V205 um, 
project, that's about 5% of the world's vanadium, and that's we, we sized it because 5% sounded like a pretty non-disruptive sort of thing to do. Um, but we could double the size of that if we had the right market, and we can make our cash costs go through the floor. Um, and there's all sorts of interesting technical things that I sort of can't allude to just at the moment. Um, there's a few proprietary things that are pretty interesting about some byproducts that we're playing with there, uh, which really help that and make it a really commercially robust project as well. But, but what I'm saying is seven or eight dollar vanadium, where it's fallen to, it's clearly not as good as thirty-three dollar uh, vanadium. But um, we can make money out of seven or eight dollar vanadium, and we can make a lot of money out of seven or eight dollar vanadium if we expand our project, and therefore. All that then goes back to what are you doing as far as your linkages, who are you talking to, who do you want to get into bed with, and we've made no secret of the of the, the point that we uh, are talking to battery manufacturers. Um, we're talking to people who can be a part of us in whatever way that is, you know. I, but, 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 but how real is that? Because, you know, all vanadium uh, producers are talking the battery story. You know, 90%, 90% of the market is, sure. is rebar okay that's the reality and it's early yeah. early days in yeah. terms of the vrfb batteries okay so sure. what you know and, and again we, we we have this conversation a lot with vanadium producers we, yeah. and they talk the battery story because it sounds great to shareholders but you know you got to have the prerequisite yeah. skills in-house or you've got to have the right partners on board and strategic partners with with the right balance sheet to be able to do that and you know your early stages so is this is this wishful thinking or is this actually a reality of, of of what you can do because you think the scale of this will allow you to do that? Well, so far I've had um, three sort of pretty serious full day conversations in three different locations in the world on this particular um, battery initiative that we're talking about. And uh, we're taking it pretty seriously. You know, the, the vanadium battery market and people know that they have a cap on the vanadium price before they say it doesn't really work. And I think there's some really smart things you can do in terms of partnerships to ensure that goes on. I mean, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure there are, but you know, and, and you're, you may be treating this seriously. But what does that actually mean? Have you got people? Are you at latter stage discussions with people, or like I say, is, is it just is it just a process you're going no, through? It's, okay. I'll, I'll, well, I'm, again, I can't. Um, I can't. There is is a particular party who we are talking to right. in some detail. I would still put it at the. Um, it's gone beyond the concept stage. It's uh, we're talking, you know, how things could work. Uh, we haven't um, haven't sat in each other's laps yet. We haven't gone, you know. Yeah, it's, it's you know how these things move along progressively. Um, but it's it's quite serious. We we like the story. I'd like to make it happen. Um, and look, there's a, there's a chart that I have in my presentation from March, which you might have read. It's a battery uh -huh. storage chart. Yeah. Chart. And, you know, at the moment, I think that chart says that there's something of the order of 15 to 20 gigawatts of storage capacity. Um, and in, we're only talking 11 years, they're saying now, 2030, and they're saying that might be 300 gigawatts of, of storage. Now, if that chart is even half wrong, 
if it's two thirds wrong, if you saw that as, you know, if that was the beer market or the, you know, the, the underwear market, you'd want to be in that sector. So I just say that if that storage, uh, if that storage graph is even a third right, then it's not a bad market to be in. See, I don't really believe in renewables now and I don't believe renewables only because, and this is before I had a vanadium push and a vanadium push on batteries. I haven't believed in renewables simply because, as we know, the sun goes down and the wind stops blowing. Um, but if we get real industrial storage onto these renewables, they become a force to reckon, be reckoned with. Maybe they can become baseload. Um, lithium batteries don't do that. Yes. Uh, the one thing yeah. I disagree with the vanadium battery world is the vanadium battery world compares themselves to the lithium battery world. And I say, guys, just it's wrong. But you, you can't believe Vanatech, Vanatech just put out a whole video saying, look at a video, look at a, 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 a lithium battery. It's going to burn. It's going to do this. It's going to do that. I'm saying forget that. You know, it's like in the world we need cars and we need trucks. You know, the cars are the lithium batteries, retail call them. The trucks are the industrial batteries. We need both on the roads, mm. you know. And... Uh, so I'm a big believer, whether it's vanadium Rodox flow batteries or not, but the flow batteries are the ones that do store power for a long period of time. And that's what interests me. So yeah. I, I'm a bit of a believer in it. Okay, but well, that, that's the macro. Okay, that's the macro. Yeah. But, you know, that's got nothing to do with you right now. You're at the point where you've got a scoping study coming out later this month, potentially end of August. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. So you're going to have a, an idea of what you've got there and you've got to then you know work out how you move that forward so what are your hopes for between now and the end of year in terms of what you can do in terms of understanding what you've got and then what are you going to do with it yes i mean to to, to push you back a little bit there we found this project 10 or 11 years ago we mm. spent 20 million dollars on it Yes, a lot of it went onto vanadium, uh, onto uranium, but right. we spent a lot also on vanadium. So we really understand this project. Okay. We do know Sweden pretty well, very well. We know the region, we know the local people. So, you know, we're, we're, this is more than just a concept project. This is a pretty, pretty serious thing. And, um, you know, so I do believe the next step is to do something where we, we start to get a tire with some of these people um, you know, I, I, like I say, I'd be equally happy to tie up with a steel producer who needs the vanadium. And, you know, I've got, got some people who are interested in that. They're less interested now that vanadium price has gone down, clearly, because they don't feel uh, they need it. Um, but, um, no, I want to move this to a corporate stage. Um, I do want to get the IPO done. I do want to do something with the battery tyre, if that's possible. Um, and, and I want to do that within a reasonably short period of time. Got it. Okay, that's brilliant. So just on the IPO, you're looking to IPO on ASX or AIM? Um, no, because of the waking up in Swedish daylight hours, it's got to be European time. Got it. Brilliant. Thanks for that. So um, so those are the two projects. Um, can you so quickly go through the, the Mauritanian gold battery metals um, yeah. project? So the, what we've got there is we've got our key and greenstone belts. Um, all of Kalgoorlie and, you know, there's similar stuff in Canada um, is Arkeen Greenstone Belt. Mm -hmm. um, this is a really, really unusual set of mm -hmm. um, Greenstone Belts because the only discovery on this Greenstone Belt is Kinross's Tazius Mine and a 20 million ounce deposit. Yeah. 
Um, greenstone belts are renowned for not having a single discovery and they are renowned for once you have one discovery and you find another, there's a raft of, um, yeah. of different sizes. Um, Neil, our geo, talks about something called Ziff's Law and Ziff's Law is that you have a, uh, a curve you know, from a 20 million ounce deposit all the way down to a 1 million ounce deposit and everything in between. So, you know, based on when you do Ziff's Law on the Kalgoorlie field, you see 30 or 40 different deposits of varying size. We've got one on this field and it's Tazius and it's 20 million ounces. Now, we are, we just did a, we got our tenements granted and we then did a deal with another party so we have now tied up about half of that greenstone belt, all for one ten, all but for one tenement. We've tied up half the greenstone belt, and Kinross has the other half. Um, we've uh, hit mineralisation. As I said, we bought this for a hundred thousand dollars in a royalty, um, but previously they had Drake had spent three million dollars of hard-earned folded stuff on the greenstone belt on, on these tenements. Um, so we're not going in there cold and the guy who conceived it and did the work is now my principal geo. Um, we've found mineralization. Um, what you've got to get is you've got to get system size and you've got to get grade. We've hit system size with a little bit of grade and we've hit grade with not much system size. We've just got to get the two together. But we're talking about one drill hole for the money we've spent. We've took, we've drilled one drill hole, for every 20 square kilometres so far. So, um, you know, we've got a lot more work to do. One of the more exciting parts of it, and the reason why I put on the end um, battery metals, is we did a fence of drilling, 1.6 kilometres long. Again, if you go through that presentation, it's the bright pink slide, and it's 1.6 kilometres long. It was air core holes. Uh, they were about six or seven metres deep. Pretty well every one of them hit near percent nickel. And we sampled, uh, so we assayed one in 10 of the pulps and we found cobalt and the cobalt was as high as 0.58%. So pretty exciting to get back and look at. I asked them whether they kept the other nine pulps so we could do the rest of the cobalt assays and they said, no boss, we threw them out. It was a bit of a bummer. Okay, so again, early stages, but the potential there, where everyone knows about you know green, greenstone belts in West Africa, uh, yep. Exciting, exciting stuff. Um, so let's just let's get, go out to a little bit more macro. What's your view on the Iranian market? When's it going to turn? Is it is it your area of expertise, or, or, or what? What do you know? Of course, it's my area of expertise. <laughs> I'm a uranium CEO. I can tell you how many reactors are going to be built next week. Well done, fantastic. I don't know anything about the Iranian market at all, with re, with respect to how a uranium market expert knows about the uranium market. But I make it my job to talk to, we've got an offtake agreement for uranium uh, from a, a group in London, uh, and I talk to them quite often, uh, and I talk to other players in London uh, on that. That's ye yellow, yellow cake, presumably? No, 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 they, that's, a, that's, a, that's an ETF really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so who, is it who's just a... on resources is our offtaker. Got it. Okay. Thanks very much for that. Okay. So you, you're relying on them, uh, but you kind of don't care you, if you can get, if the price is right, you're going to get into production and you'll, you'll start producing. Yeah. 
Yeah, look, the big, the big thing at the moment with the market for me, it's really simple. I mean, I seriously don't make a habit of trying to count how many reactors are getting built and how many pounds goes into each reactor. I'm going to let other people with a digital mind do that sort of stuff. What I am focusing on is this big concept of what happened in 2005. You know, if you look at, there's again a chart that I used. 2005, there was about 50, or maybe it was 2004, there was 50 million pounds of long-term contracting in place. And within, by the next year, they had put 250 million pounds of contracting in place. And that lasted for seven or eight years. It wasn't a fluke. The current coverage um, in 2021 and 2022 for long-term contracts is like four and 3%. Um, they will get nervous. There is a, I don't know when it's going to be, but they will get nervous. They, 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 it doesn't matter the cost they pay for this stuff, as you well know, but they definitely can't run out of it. So at some stage they will move. And and look, the last the February results of Canico, um, Can, not Canico, Cameco, um, Cameco, sorry, Cameco. Uh, I always read the Cameco stuff. Their marketing stuff is brilliant. They're fantastic at it. They've got teams and teams of people who are much smarter than me, focused on it all day long. And I read their stuff. They also made these comments about the utilities looking like they're coming back to the table to start the the dance for doing long term contract. So what happened in 2004, 2005, leading to that big explosion in price was seven or eight of the utilities all decided to squeeze through the door at once. And of course, you know, um, I always remember, I asked one of the guys in London, I said, what happened with that? What was the max price paid in that peak? And he said, he thought it was about $138 a pound. And I said, do you know the guy who did it? And he said, yeah, I do, I know him. And I said, what sort of guy is he? And he said, well, he's a nuclear physicist. He's sitting there and he, um, basically had a manila folder and said he needed this much uranium. And on the day when his boss had walked down the corridor and said, how's that contracting going? And he said, we haven't got much. And he said, well, you better fix that. And then just, you know, press the bid, press the bid, press the bid, and kept on going. So a nuclear physicist running a plant is also looking at nuclear violence. So these are the sort of things that might happen. So I'm a believer that it's the utilities charging through the door at once, which will give us the perk. We shall see. There's lots of conversation around it. I know a lot of our viewers are, you know, really passionate about you know, uranium and, and certainly uranium companies. Uh, your outlook on the vanadium market? Um, outlook on the vanadium market's probably um, confused, but I would say that the getting up to 33, there was clearly a lot of speculation. Uh, and I think falling back down to seven, I'd say there's a lot of play and it's been played down there. Some of the people who need vanadium, um, they've sort of confided to me that I don't I don't think they think it's gonna stay down here, but I, it's not gonna race back up to 33 either. So, you know, I, we always thought somewhere in the, in the 10 to 15 range was more likely for it to sit. And that's what I think it will go back to at some stage, but I don't expect to see 2025. Okay, okay. interesting, Peter. Um, Peter, just to, just to kind of wrap up there, what, can you sort of summarise your thoughts on where Aura Energy is going and why you think new investors should be looking at you because of the share price is what the share price is. But um, from what you've told me today, there's a lot of things that you're going to be doing. Why should they invest in Aura Energy? Just primarily start with what we've got in Tiris. We're putting together a very interesting chart just comparing the capex of our project for Curious, the C1 cash cost and the all-in sustaining cash cost against our market cap. But I mean, there is no doubt about it. We are the most undervalued uh, of the junior mining companies uh, in, in this uranium space with a development project. 
with the low capital and with the low OPEX. For me, the, there's, there's three things. The low, the low CAPEX means the project's doable and the low OPEX means you'll make cash flow and the low market cap means we've got room for the share price to go up. That's about as simple as it is there. So leave, that's a good enough reason for any shareholder. If they can believe we're going to deliver what we say we are, that's a good enough reason for the shareholders to get in. Then add on to it that if we do an IPO and we retain 70 or 80% of that, we'll get an independent counter um, attributed into our share price. That's number two. And then number three, when we discover a three million ounce deposit on the Greenstone Belt in Mauritania, everybody we want to own in our shares. So that's going to happen as well. Okay. Obviously, obviously. Okay, brilliant. Well, Peter. <laughs> I appreciate your time. That was great. Some great, great first introduction to your company. I know the guys on Twitter are going to be really happy about that. Um, the fact that we've spoken and please stay in touch. Keep us up to date with how things are moving, perhaps or, you know, late, later uh, in Q4. Um, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for the time. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.